Peace and thank you, family, for tuning into Creative Habits Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Anthony. And I'm your co-host, Indigo. We're based in Washington, D.C. with leading discussions on topics surrounding pop culture, business, lifestyle, and art with an occasional guest appearance within the creative and entrepreneurial industry. Cool. So today we have um, a very special guest. We are welcoming a Mr. Ty Glover to the Creative Habits Podcast. Ty is the visionary mind behind neural creativity programming, a fascinating approach that explores the intersection between uh, neuroscience and creativity. Welcome, Mr. Ty Glover. How are Thank you doing today? Thank you for today? having me. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning. Absolutely. And I'm here in Philadelphia and I, I know you're in D.C., Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. mm-hmm. Uh, so can you uh, elaborate on the principles of neurocreative programming and how it enhances your creative process? Well, so let me let me start by saying that neurocreative programming kind of emerged from another foundation or another methodology, another concept that kind of came out of the, nine, the late 80s or rather, mm-hmm. excuse me, the late 70s, early 80s. And it was called neurolinguistics programming. Mm. With the neural being our five senses and the way we're taking in the information, it's the only way through which we can actually capture what I call the raw materials for our mm. eyes to what we see, what we can remember from what we saw, what we hear, what we can remember from what we heard, and vice versa, going all the way across the five senses. Now, mm. neural creative program, excuse me, neural linguistics programming looks at the relationships that we have. In other words, our upbringing, our growth from birth all the way through to where we are today and how we picked up information, how we gained our knowledge of who we are, ourself, what we want to become or not mm-hmm. become. But so it's that inter, it's that interrelationship that we have or rather that intra-relationship that we have with ourselves and our understanding of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Now, it's also inter relationship because it's also the relationship that I have with you now, the conversations Mm. that we're having, the way I'm kind of taking some of the things that you're saying and translating them in my mind, coming up with an understanding of it that could be possibly different from the way you intend it. But nonetheless, it's internal. It's a dialogue that we have. Mm. Neural creative programming is external. It doesn't look inward at how we experience and how we interrelate. It looks external at how we experience our surroundings, our environment, any environment that we walk into and take in what I call, again, the raw materials for our ideas. Mm. And if you think Steve Jobs, he made that very famous statement way back in the day, you can't connect the dots by looking forward. You've got to look backwards. And you got to hope that somehow they'll they'll occur in your future. He goes on to talk about whether it's fate, karma, or whatever. I speak to that whole space of what it comes from, the fate, the karma, or the whatever. And that's what neurocreative programming is all about. So basically, um, the way we're brought up through nature, nurture, our environment, right. it it influences our perception on how we see the world and how we take in the external world and bring it in the internal, right? It it actually creates the perception that we have. It, so we have the perception that we receive. In other words, 
uh, the way we're brought up. Think about, for example, our birth. You know, we're mm. operating in a certain brainwave pattern. I think it's Delta at that point where it's melodic. It's um, it's in a meditative state when we're first born as a, as a mm -hmm. from zero to two. Mm -hmm. And and being in that state, we're not conscious of what's happening. We're taking in information. We're gleaming it. We're grabbing it. But you have to think about it. Again, going back to that ancient expression or rather mentioning an ancient expression of correspondence, nothing comes from nothing. That's the second law. Mm. A, a child has nothing from which they can make a deduction as to what's happening around them until they build those dots through the experiences that they're having. Mm. And they can't discern as to whether they want to accept this or not. It just comes in and it forms what's called Engel Swan, a, a clairvoyant of the uh, the 90s and, and 2000s, would have said they create what's referred to as route anchors, meaning mm. anchors of our understanding of where we are, and then they create routes as to where we're going to go. Mm. Does that make sense? For yeah, example, yeah. you have the possibly the racist father, and there are certain things that are said to you early on, they become anchor routes that take you down a route towards becoming or being more racist towards people that you don't mm. understand. Mm. So that's the way we're, we're birthed and where we come up through about two years old and then our brain moves into another wavelength pattern. It's still melodic. It's still um, in a meditative state, but yet we still have more of an ability to process. Now we're starting to develop our, our brain functions better and therefore we're able to make certain deductions outside of just what we take in. We're able to be more discerning. But it's not until we really get into a much older age where things are all on us, where we have to make the deductions and determine what's going on. We're not learning like we once learned. You know, my wife is a um, – she's a nanny. She's been a nanny for, for several years now. She's Latina. Um, she's speaking only Spanish to the children. Mm -hmm. And when she gets a kid that, that's like three or four months old, that child will be English – or excuse me, Spanish fluent. By the time she lets that child go or leaves that child in, in maybe two or three years because she's doing fully immersive and that child is just taking it in without even processing as to whether I know Spanish, whether I can know Spanish in another language at the same time because they don't have that ability to discern. They just simply take in. And so, you know, that's the way our brain works with regards to the way we're growing up through life. Mm -hmm. And we get locked into certain viewpoints. You know, and so those viewpoints take us down. Again, that's in the the uh, neurolinguistics part, but the creative side is again all the dots that we're collecting through those experiences. You know, nothing comes from nothing. We need to have an observation of something where we ask a question ourselves: What is that? How does that work? Why does it work that way? How can I use it later on? And then that becomes a dot. That's what Steve Jobs referred to. And then that's mm. what we reference later on in our lives when it comes to solving problems or creating opportunities that we see around us. I love that concept um, in relation to um, the principles of, of Greek philosophers, Egyptian philosophers, um, just to sit down, think, and really absorb everything as it is. Um, I don't think we really do that now because we're um, too confined to wake, wash, work, or the, the the ideals that our parents put on us that you have to go to school, you have to do this at a certain age, you have to, we don't really have the opportunity to sit down, meditate, and absorb everything and take it in. Right. And even more so, I'd say we don't have the, the 
the knowledge of how to do that. There's mm. a process to thought, you know, just like there's a process to being a um, a person who's employable, a person who has the right attitude towards work, the work ethic gets up, goes, knows he has to go in to work in the morning without having to be told to. There's a certain process that we have to go through and a certain education that we have to get to to be able to understand this is how I do this at this stage in my life based on the girls that we, the goals that we have. Everything involves attention and focus to a specific point of what you're trying to gain knowledge of in order to mm. be able to gain that knowledge. It requires work. And the problem is we're so distracted. You know, mm -hmm. we've got the phones and all the technology and we've got everybody around us that we want to connect with. But if you can think back 2,000, 2,500 years ago, there was no TV, obviously. There was no radio. There was no distraction, which means you had a lot of time to think. Yeah. You had a lot of time to just think. And there was also a, a transference of knowledge. Like you've heard the story of, um, of Atlantis. Yeah, yeah. Atlantis came from Solon who had been visiting Egypt and had heard these stories about this place that had once existed roughly 9,000 years ago. But That was place, uh, Plato's great-grandfather or third great, 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 great. Like yeah, 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 way yeah. out there, like 400 right. years difference. Now, how do you transfer knowledge 400 years down the pike to mm -hmm. a great, 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 great grandson when in fact we couldn't even do that today. I don't even know if anybody outside of the Royals know anyone in their family that may have been five or six or seven generations you know, before. But yet here, so it shows you the structure was there. It shows you there was some stability there. It shows you that Plato was a had money, he had influence, and mm -hmm. therefore they were able to keep this depository of, of knowledge that had been transferred down to him. But when you think of such stability, especially when it comes to the elites, the people that had the time to study, they had a lot of time to study. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, six or 700 years um, of being able to one generation after another thought school, after another thought school, taking foundational ideas and then building upon those foundational ideas. You know, mm. it, it's that's what was so incredible about the period of the ancients. They didn't have the technologies and therefore they were inward focused and they were observing what was around them. And we just don't do that today. We don't take note of the details of any given thing. I think the most recent instance I can think about um, being that it is Black History Month, right. um, the early 19th century, um, a little bit after slavery, we had a lot of black inventors, um, the doorknob, the refrigerator, yeah. the like we we so many things that we utilize today that we don't even think about were created by black inventors. And they had those um, instances where they can really sit down, ponder and think and innovate you know, and create because they sat down, took in their environment. We are not, we're not in the fields, uh, sharecropping anymore, picking cotton. What can we do? So they took in their environment and, and created just, just created so many different things. And I don't, and I think, um, there has been a drop in that and just black creators in general, you know, I don't know if that's by design or by convenience. Like, what, what are your thoughts yeah, on that? I don't think it's necessarily by design. You know, a friend of mine and I had a conversation about this just the other day. I think that we want to follow the formula for success. 
and mm. we believe that the formula for success is what our parents told us throughout the since the end of slavery, probably all throughout the um, the twentieth century. You know, um, that you go to school, you get your degree, you get your education, you come out, you get a job, and then you get another degree, and you're aspiring towards that doctorate. We were right. so focused on the degree for the degree itself. Mm-hmm. as a degree, as opposed to the knowledge, and therefore the degree came as a result, but we weren't focused on the knowledge. And therefore, right. we wound up following patterns. You know, you see all these these young brothers and sisters involved in, back in the day, they're involved in crypto. I think a lot of them are getting in right now because people tell them, this is the pattern that you have to follow. Therefore, we jump on board because we need a pattern from which mm. we can execute what we're trying to be to be successful in this life. And the problem is, when you follow those types of patterns, you you negate your own creative mindset to be able to understand something different. Mm-hmm. Because understanding something different is difficult. It requires work. There's a great deal more risk, but there's also a great deal more reward. Mm-hmm. Um, what led you to develop this approach and how has it uh, personally influenced your own creativity and endeavors? You know, I would say that, again, I've always been a creator. I've always been a product developer and inventor, um, so a different type of creator. Um, and I never saw them as overlapping, you know, until I started really studying the creative industries. But what really took me down this direction is I would say I'm on the neurodivergent spectrum, which means that I don't necessarily have the um, the sense of interpretation of certain experiences that other people might have. You know, Howard Gardner is a professor, a Harvard University retired. He came out with over like nine different books, I think 13, mm-hmm. on a concept known as multiple intelligences mm-hmm. and the recognition mm-hmm. of the fact that we don't all have just the one logical mathematical that does well in the IQ test, but we've got eight others according to, you know, for example, the the spatialist, the person who sees in large wide spaces and can understand perspective and, and distance. Mm-hmm. And therefore they're the creators, they're the painters, they're the visual artists, um, they're the sculptors um, or the musical, obviously musical is a big one. The naturalist is a person who may have grown up in, for example, Barneo and may be completely an indigenous person. They're going to know everything about flora, about the plants, about what's happening within the sky, perhaps surrounding them. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you can take a person who did, um, what, a 1400 on an SAT score and drop them out in Borneo, and they couldn't last a night. You know, mm-hmm. So their mm-hmm. intelligence isn't the same, but we negate the other intelligences for the superiority of, should we say, the mathematical, logical. Those are the ones that are touted you know, with Minza and all these other things. Mm-hmm. And if you really buy into that, then you really discount your own, what I call your own instinctive advantages, the things you are naturally inclined to do well, because you're thinking I have to align around this particular area. I started recognizing my instinctive advantages, which was something that I do that not many people do. I think it's something that creators do, especially something along the product creators line where we are naturally curious about certain things. Again, the operations, how's it working, what's it doing? Why is it doing that? How can I use it in other spaces? Not a lot of people focus on on the thing enough to observe it enough to understand and dig deeper into the details of that thing that they're examining. And that's why we just move through without ideas as to how to solve problems, but rather taking on other people's ideas as to how it must be done. And Mm. thus you have all these different influencers online of saying, you got to do it this way. 
we negate our own ability to create, to imagine when we follow those routes as the only route. Absolutely. They, we are definitely um, put in these boxes, especially um, in inner city schools where they uh, quote unquote claim that kids don't test as well. Maybe they just don't learn in that particular way. You know, me, I was a visual learner. I can't, I can read, but it won't retain in my head. Like I would have to go out and experience that in order for me to retain it. And, you know, um, I know a lot of people who are like that, who are creatives. Um, In practical terms, how can individuals apply neurocreativity um, programming to unlock their creative potential? I think, again, if you look at any given, you know, you've got a perspective, you're looking ahead, for example, but if you mm-hmm. look at any given point within your surrounding and focus in on that one point, you'll find detail in that one point. Mm-hmm. And if you focus in on that detail far enough, you will find even greater detail within the detail up to your ability for your eyes to be able to perceive the differences and so forth. So there's always detail underneath the detail. And I think when we're out, especially for the kids, when we're out in our surroundings, we should be encouraging our kids to ask, you know, there was that Amazon commercial where the kids were like, what's that? How's that work? And going through a whole series of all those questions, we should be encouraging our children to ask the questions of what they're seeing how it's working, what does it do, and get them to start looking for other things because that's teaching them how to connect dots. Not teaching them how, that's teaching them the process of connecting dots naturally. I can definitely- That's how you build that creative mind. Again, nothing comes from nothing. You have to have those observations from which you can pull those knowledge sets, those experiences, and put them into your ideas. I can definitely attest to that because my four-year-old is really inquisitive. Yeah. about the world around him. Right. And I often get jealous in a sense because he, the world is so huge to him. Yeah. You know, he's not tied down to uh, technology or traditional um, education. Like everything, the world is, is, is basically his backyard. His oyster, right, right. You know, and me in my 30s, I... Uh, I often have to bring myself back to that childlike mind to uh, expand my thought process to look at things in, in different perspectives. Right, right. Well, they're and they're naturally curious. You know, again, coming up from the way they first started to understand, not understand, but taking in information. And now he's in that place. Um, is, it's a son, your son? Yes. So now he's in that place where he can start to to challenge what he's seeing, to want to know more, to ask more questions. I didn't realize that I was any different from anybody else from the standpoint of my attention to detail and the interest and curiosity until I was in Costa Rica, and I, excuse me, Dominican Republic, and we were in the zone, the Zona Rosa, the old town area where Christopher Columbus had first landed, had first set up his shop, had son had built his first building. And I'm looking at this structure that his son had created, um, and I'm noticing on one, all these different windows in the top areas one or two of the windows had this arch that went up. Mm. And I'm sitting there wondering, why are all these other windows square? But yet those two windows have these little arches at the top, very perceptible. You have to really be looking at differences to notice them. And so I walked away from that experience. But when, my, when I pointed it out to a friend, 
she pointed out to me the fact that you're very curious, you're very, you're very attention to detail. You notice things that other people don't notice. That's when I started recognizing it as one of my gifts, one of my instinctive advantages. But you take note of those curiosities, and then mm-hmm. nine times out of ten, we walk away, we forget them, we don't think anything more about them. But the creative mind will go through that curiosity and will examine it. They will fixate. They will go into detail and try to understand more. And for that particular point, with the buildings having having the the, the shape like that, if you think about what was happening in 1491, 1492, as Christopher Columbus is sailing, you've also got the collapse of the um, of the Moors in mm-hmm. um, in Spain. Yeah. which means you had a letting of all these different Muslims, all these different people had lived all throughout Al-Andalus, which is in southern Spain and different parts and regions of Spain. They were jumping on ships and they were heading to the new world because it represented opportunities and represented jobs for them. And those were the ones that tried to put their little influence into the buildings itself to show that I am here as well. This is my creative style from the standpoint of our Muslim beliefs and our our creative aspects of the Muslim faith. So just drilling down into those details, they always tell a story that that's different from what we first see when we just look without looking into the details. That is extremely fascinating. I never really thought about that. Um, yeah. You go to a lot of the cities like Lazone, mm-hmm. like um, there's another one, um, La Vega. I think it's La Vega. Mm-hmm. Um, a love Ramada, where you will find a whole town that has all this influence of uh, Muslim influence through much of South America, because mm-hmm. they came over with the Spaniards and they were the ones that were building right alongside with the Spaniards until there came a point where the they didn't want the Muslims going over there because they didn't want them to influence the populations that were there. But early on, there was a lot of influence coming out of the Islamic world going over into the New World, especially in the Americas. Yeah, teaching them how to bathe and yeah, <laughs> agriculture oh, and all types of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't want to get into that. <laughs> yeah. You know, look at um, all the libraries that used to be through, uh, not libraries, just libraries and baths, to your point of yeah. bathing, that mm-hmm. used to be all throughout Spain. And once the Christians took over, 90% of those baths, I think there were like over 70 in one city alone, it might have been Barcelona. At the end of that, there was like maybe three or four. Because mm-hmm. bathing wasn't an aspect that was considered as being cleanliness close to God, you know that was the workers didn't get to do that. But within the Islamist, within the Islamic faith, it was something that was cherished. It was something that was very important. So yeah. they had a lot of baths. They had a lot of libraries. Knowledge was important. Yeah, um, from my understanding, um, they're supposed to bathe or wash their hands and feet before they do prayer or when they call to pray. So. Doing that five times a day, <laughs> that's definitely right. cleanly this. Right. <laughs> and the Romans were very much so interested in the baths. They had public baths. The challenge with that was that they were disease spreaders. Right. And so, you know, you had right. plagues that were occurring around the, the baths. And then it kind of collapsed when the Roman Empire collapsed and, you know, kind of moved into a thing where the baths were not part of the Christian society. You know, the, mm. the nudity and everything else, it was moved away from that. Yeah. Um, are there any particular cognitive anomalies that uh, consist- consistently play a pivotal role in the creative process based on your observations? Now, when you say anomalies, because I look at everything as being, you know, here, here's the way I see things. Um, you know how sometimes your your TV channel, when you're when a commercial comes on, the volume will go up. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That does that to get your attention, to break your pattern that you've been in uh, from the standpoint of watching that show. They want you to take note of the commercial that's coming on. So they will change something to get your attention to be prompted by what you're hearing. Now, mm-hmm. that's the same way we get any of those, again, dots. When we experience the world, we experience through patterns. Mm-hmm. You know, I can visually see your pattern. I can see your shape. I can see African-American male. I can see you're wearing a plaid shirt. I can see everything around you. But if you change the pattern, again, it, it could be um, whatever pattern is there, we have to be able to deduce what that pattern is. Mm-hmm. Known patterns, again, we can make deductions very quickly of what that pattern is. If it's an unknown pattern, then we may not be able to make a deduction because we have nothing from which we can draw an understanding of. So right, and speaking right. of patterns, everything that exists in patterns is just the anomalies are the only things that catch our attention that, again, prompt us to take note, to understand more, to want to know the process and how something's working. So I'm saying all that to say, I think we all find our ideas, find our creative dots through changes in patterns that call our attention because it's the only way you're going to take note of an anomaly Mm -hmm. through a change in a pattern where you're looking down to see what is that like we have our patterns of our family our parents you know our parents as that pattern early on in their 30s 40s perhaps you're seeing them as young or vital as being energetic moving around they change patterns as they get older and we sometimes Mm -hmm. see a pattern shift maybe we will see our mother who's a little bit more feeble now that's a pattern shift So no matter what we do, we all operate according to patterns. We all identify with patterns. And again, those ideas, those dots come from our ability to be able to dig deeper into the pattern breaks that we're seeing. It's funny you said that because I've been able to recognize um, patterns since I was a kid, especially when it comes to um, the human... uh, the, the human process of maneuvering through the world. It's like, I can almost predict what's going to happen because there's only so many different patterns that we use to maneuver th- through the world. Is that like, I'm not sure if there's like a specific name for that or have you ever come across that before? I think there's a, I was listening to you and your wife talk to, um, talk about Nostradamus and mm-hmm. uh, predictions and so forth. And there's a gentleman who I, I revere, again, Engel Swan, who was a, a clairvoyant ESP practitioner. This guy was just, if you Google his name and you Google CIA, you will find hundreds and hundreds of reports that the CIA did, a, did with him in a uh, location in California where they were using, paying him as a consultant for close to 20 years for his knowledge and his ability to be able to do what's called, for example, uh, clairvoyance, remote viewing, being able to sit right here in this room and then go whatever location, if you give me accordance, longitude, latitude, and tell you what's in that room. I mean, these, these are things that the CIA paid him for. Mm-hmm. And I know the automatic response would be to discount that, but they paid him for 20 years. Yeah. You don't discount <laughs> what someone is so focused in on. You don't pay them that kind of money for such a long period of time if there's nothing there. But he talks a lot about, for example, forces and energies. And energies represent our potential. Where energies represent potential itself. It's bound potential. 
force represents the actual direction or the, the movement of that potential in whatever direction. And obviously, you know, there can be positive force or there can be negative force. Yeah. It's all dependent upon that, that mind and the human consciousness that determines where that creativity will go because the end result of that energy is the creation of something. And so we can be creating, again, positive things that enrich, or we can create negative things. Now, when it comes to, for example, you had talked about um, uh, detecting anomalies and things that may, may come into play, you know, and mentioning Nostradamus, for example, he, Engel Swan, again, talks about different types of factors that we can detect that are patterns of what will be coming next. Mm -hmm. And I think he was greatly discredited to a great extent because of... Um, he wrote a book that booked the Nostradamus factor, and he talked – he wrote it before um, – do you remember – are you old enough to remember um, chloral fluorocarbons with um, – uh, it wasn't climate change. It was ozone layer depletion. Remember that whole space around the concern of that chloral fluorocarbons, which come from refrigerant coolings and all these different types of chemicals. Right, We're right, right, right. It, it's depleting our ozone later. And he wrote about that and prognosticated what would happen as a result of the collapse of our ozone layer from the standpoint of winds and, mm -hmm, and environmental mm -hmm. change. And what happened, it wasn't directly related to anything that he did, but eventually you had the Reagan administration at the time getting together with all these other administrations around the world, and they came together and they put together solutions to solve the problem of chlorofluorocarbons, and they literally phased them out of usage so that they're not a factor anymore. Now, mm. if you read his book, you're going to say, well, none of those things came true and go, you know, I mean, you, you're, you're, you're BS. But yet he also talks about the fact that any of these factors can be redirected in another direction based on your ability and awareness of what's playing out. You have the control to be able to take them in any direction that you want. We're not fated. It's not a fated thing um, in that fated means it's from the Latin fatal. So it's not fated. We still have destiny, which from the Latin is more so to set aside which means mm. we can determine where we're going to go. We have the, the ability to control our end result in a positive or negative way. That, <clears throat> so nothing is necessarily finite with our fate, right? We can control it. I definitely believe that, um, our decisions as individuals and as a mass uh, consciousness can either, depending on the frequency that we put out, if it's a positive frequency or a negative frequency, can lead us into an ascension in a sense or can lead us to self-destruction. Right. I, I agree with that. And oftentimes we're not aware of which direction we're going in. Mm -hmm. For example, I know so many people, um, you know, are in love with Elon Musk and about his, you know, his creativity His this guy is an innovator. He's creating all these different things. But when you look at the other side of the energy that he's creating from the standpoint of the words that he uses and the intentions that are backed behind those words, then mm -hmm. I talked about um, forces, energy, potential and forces. And those forces can be either bad or good. So we're looking mm -hmm. at him and we're, we're gravitating towards him and he's, we're admiring him. But in fact, he doesn't necessarily have to be a positive force. 
he can be a negative force that we're giving energy to. And that's what we really have to consider. We're thinking we're, we're giving energy to a creative person who's an innovator and putting all this stuff out. But we can also be giving energy to put negative potential that can have very serious and detrimental consequences on us and on society as a whole. You know, so we really have to be much more careful of what we choose to give that energy to and take a much more holistic approach as opposed to just saying, I like what he does there. I'm going to I'm going to support him. He's the greatest in the world. You were speaking about Elon Musk, and we all know that he has a famous company called Tesla. Let's speak a little bit about Nikola Tesla. Um, I'm probably butchering the quote, but he said that a lot of the inventions and the information he gained was already was just like sent to his brain from the universe. That's just my crazy abbreviation. Do you do you right, think right. there's any fact behind that? Um, well, if you think if you had to think about it this way, um, you know what I talk about with neurocreative programming. In my, I'm an ideation coach, which means I help people to understand a the process of thinking and creativity. You know, there's a process associated with everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you dig into the details, again, of any given point of a question that you have, you start to move into a space, should we say, um, what's the best way to say that? You start to move into a point where it moves beyond your, your conceptual understanding of the processes that are taking place. And you start to move into an imaginative mode of what could take place. Mm -hmm of the possibilities. You know, one guy described it um, beautifully from the standpoint of saying that it's like an architect who, who knows, learns how to use a slide roller, learns how to use a compass, learns how to use all these different devices, and then learns how to put them down on paper and create things and designs right on the paper itself by using the equipment that's associated with it. But when you think so much about it and you practice so much and become such a part of your let's just say automatic function, the way your brain's automatically functioning and processing information, that you move into a point where you no longer need the tools mm -hmm. themselves. You no need, longer need the slide rollers or the compass or whatever to be able to create. Nikola's Tesla was known for his ability to be able to conceive completely through a discovery, through an invention, through an idea, to such level of detail that it was completed before he even put it down mm -hmm. on paper. That's the ability to be able to imagine in greater depth and greater details. You know, you're imagining one point. I come to an understanding of that one point, and then you're imagining the next level above that, and I come to the understanding of that. And then you're building upon those foundations of your understandings through the process of imagining. You could say that that is a universal process from which that information is being received. You know, there's a um, a writer by the name of Anthony Peake who I um, I really love his books, and there's one called The Damien, mm. and it's that same ancient concept of the fact that we are have two consciousnesses. One consciousness is the is what he would refer to as the Elong. It's ourselves. It's us. It's taking in the reality that's given to us, making our own determination of what this reality is, and then moving forward. But the Damien is the consciousness or rather the reality, the same person as you. It's more or less you can call it that soul of that mm. person that has lived all lives before. He's lived 
all the lives that you're going to live and all the iterations or possibilities. And therefore, he knows where you're going to, where you're trying to get to. He knows the obstacles that are in front of you. And I think, again, going back to Tesla, your Damien will place things in front of Mm. you to find, to grab, if you are aware of what's happening and looking for the details. You will find that your Damien is presenting what you need to allow you and to assist you in onwards in your journey and whatever you're trying to create. But you just have to be open and imaginative in the process of the fact that I'm, I'm focused on a specific thing, and then those things will be presented to you as far as the results are concerned that will take you in a whole lot of directions. It's amazing what you'll get when you're just open and receptive to what can come to you. That reminds me, um, I was watching this lecture um, from a very, like a hip-hop legend, KRS-One. KRS-One. And he was talking about that inner space and he was uh, I'm pretty probably going to butcher it but he was talking about a a rock star drink and he was like you can say the drink vocally everyone can hear it the sounds we talk uh, we speak with that vibration we can hear it but when you say it in your mind or when you say it in your head what is that but the basically the 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 whole information or the whole the story was talking about that voice that said that that specific thing is the real you. Right, right. So the voice that said the so the voice that said the specific thing is the real. I like that. That's exactly it. it it's mm-hmm. you know, there's a story that he again, um, Anthony Peak talks about, and he gives various stories about Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. who um, was a person, uh, I think she was in the 17 or 1600s, but it was a woman who had this dream, this vision about what she was going to become, her destiny. And she would be plagued with or hear stories, hear things that she's supposed to do. Voices would talk to her and it involved something around the, the Christian church and so forth. But long story short is that she would get in and do what these voices were telling her to do, which was leading her into fame. Mm-hmm. But her Damien knew what her direction was, knew where she was supposed to be going, and therefore was giving her information to allow her to continue down on her path. And it wasn't until she was questioning and then was going against what was being given to her that your Damien can kind of say, you know what, in this particular lifetime, you followed a particular path that I can no longer bring you back from and take you to another path. Mm-hmm. You've moved too far down a road for me be, to be able to get you to where you're going to be. So it's going to have to be that next t- lifetime that you're going to have to live. And hopefully you'll get it right the next time because the Damien will be there to guide you. And we take these, these, this knowledge with us into the next lifetime and into the next lifetime where we're supposed to be learning from these experiences mm-hmm. and getting better at navigating through this environment that we're living in, becoming much more successful from the standpoint of our light and increasing our light, our energy. There's many different, I want to say translations, but um, ideas on the Damien where you have Mm -hmm. um, the Jiminy Cricket trope, your consciousness, Mm -hmm. or you have your guardian angel, or, you know, things that just help guide you you know, um, in, in, the, uh, in a con tradition, um, West African um, belief systems, mm-hmm. they often 
pray to the ancestors and ask the ancestors for guidance, which often helps them, you know, navigate through whatever um, situation they need to navigate through. Um, Do you think that all these different cultures with their different definitions of the Damien, do you think they're connected in a sense? Most definitely. I, you know, it's um, because I think that's part of that universal energy. You know, mm. the West Africans, there's one particular group, They it's called the uh, Bayombo. Mm. Um, the Chinese have their own particular entity. Um, the the Egyptians had their own particular mm. entity that, that would be their – if you think about it this way, and again, Anthony Peake talks about this as well, the fact that we've got two sides or two, should we say, um, two consciousness – Consciousness is mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Consciousness is <laughs> within our, our brain, within our mind. We've got left side, right side. And it's been proven through um, what they call split brain testing through where people have had different injuries in different parts of the brain and they've been able to examine them. It's been proving that in fact one side of the brain has a different consciousness and can relate differently to things mm. as compared to the other side of the brain. And he believes and goes into a great deal of detail talking about how that one side of the brain, the Elong, is in fact being influenced by the direction of the other side of the brain, the the um the Damien and how impactful that can be across all portions of our life or all processes that we're involved in if again we're attuned to hearing those messages most of the times we we don't listen you know if you move into that whole space of clairvoyance and and esp and all these other different should we say extra perceptions that's been beaten out of us you know the, the catholic church did a number on the whole process of imagination Mm-hmm. Back with um with the the rise of um of the Catholic Church in 400 500, you know there was one school that existed uh, I can't remember the name Silesium I can't remember the exact name of it but there was one school that it had existed for over 1700 years where worshippers would go and they would go one time of the year each year. And they would have this pilgrimage, this one three-day event on a weekend. Uh, well, they'd probably didn't have weekends, mm. but this three-day event where they all moved, and it's believed that they took some type of a concoction related to mushrooms. But Irgot? they went. Is it ergot? It wasn't ergot. This was. Um, I it wasn't ergot, but mm. I think I know the book you're talking about with that mm. one. Um, out the Kokion. It was yeah. the Kokion, okay, right? Okay. Um, I've heard that word in connection with it, but they would take this concoction and coming out of that experience, they would no longer fear death. Mm-hmm. So if you think about some of the psychological testing that's being done with with, can, with um, mushrooms right now and being used for treatment and people going through you know terminal situations, that's exactly how it works on the mind. But mm-hmm. they were taking some concoction that allowed them to be able to remove past the fear and the worries associated with death. And this was the school had continued for, for a thousand plus years until it was destroyed by, I believe, the Visigoths in like 400 something AD mm. at the support of the Catholic Church. They did not want to deal with that anymore. That was challenging their Christian belief system that they were trying to establish. And therefore, it was destroyed. I think a lot of that revolves around, not necessarily killing your ego right because your ego is what protects you in this external world world it drives you 
to want to do better. But sometimes if you let your ego just totally take over, um, it hinders you in a way. But once you um, take these substances or, you know, go through these um, um, walkabout journeys, you know, um, it it calms your ego down to a sense where you have no fear, you know, because that ego, it protects that, that little kid or that fear inside of you. So, um, you, so you react in certain ways, but I think a lot, um, cause I took a couple of trips myself, to be honest with you, you know, mushroom trips. Okay. And the, the ride started off rough, you know, like a roller coaster. You're on the, you're, you're rising, you're scared. You see the, the world, um, below get a lot larger and you're afraid of falling. But once you go through that ride and you hit your destination, mm-hmm. everything like the fear goes away. Yeah. You know, you know it's, um, what's your name? Uh, or the popular show, the mind mm-hmm. explained on Netflix. They did a great episode on psilocybin on mushrooms. And it, they talked about how, for example, it's like the, um, if you can imagine your life as being a ski slope mm-hmm. with all the different trips that you've taken down and therefore all the damage, all the trauma, all the experience that you've had representing deep ruts cut into that slope. The psilocybin kind of has the effect of layering a brand new coat of snow on top of that mountain, filling in those ruts so that now you can start developing a new relationship with those traumas or the pains and therefore step outside of it no longer is part of hitting you, um, but you're able to objectively observe what happened without having the emotion take you in a particular direction. So yeah, I can see psilocybin is going to be, um, I can see where it's going. You know, mm-hmm. I see cannabis as well in working in the same vein. Mm-hmm. You know, cannabis is something I've got a whole program that um, I work with people on from the standpoint of how do you use cannabis mm-hmm. to think differently and understanding the way cannabis works on the mind with the CB1 receptor and how the brain processes information, takes in the observation and temporarily stores it possibly in the hippocampus where it has the ability to be able to move it to other parts, but we haven't firmed up that idea yet as to whether we're going to retain it. You know, you walk in the room and you look around, you see certain things, but you don't even remember what you came in the room for. Mm-hmm. Well, that's part of, of the hippocampus. Is it, it doesn't need to be preserved and therefore it's letting it go. Whereas other experiences we're going to have, we're going to pull in more information. And there's a gentleman by the name of, what is his name? Philip Farber, who wrote a really cool book called High Magic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he explains how cannabis works from the standpoint of what we call our default mode network, which is the way the brain, when I ask you anything or speak anything to you, you're going to have to think before you can give me a reply back. And your brain will go through what's called the default mode network, where it has to search through instantly all the different images, sounds, smells, tastes, or, or feelings that it has ever had to find that one depository of that answer to the question or to the statement that was made so you can pull it back and then you can actually make the statement that you want to make before I reply back to you. So there's a whole lot of work mm. with what the brain is doing within that default mode network. And it's called a transderivational search is when we search our mind for an answer to a question. 
Mm-hmm. And so what he was talking about was really an interesting thing is how the brain works when we have cannabis, because you've got one side of it is that mathematical, logical mind where we're able to go and logically solve problems. We can put solutions into place. We can take care of this or solve this over here. But the mind on cannabis has the ability to do fanciful ideation at the same time, it's working on the executive function, which mm. means when you combine those two things, you're logically creating a new future or a new imaginative point, mm-hmm. while at the same time, it's fanciful and it's going in any direction that you want to go into, as long as you believe that it can pack, plant, pan out. And so that's what I teach within a process I call world building, where we build, you decide on what world you're trying to work with, what world you're trying to move into, and then we create that world, or rather you create that world through a series of process steps that you take. And it's a it's a continuous process that we live throughout because nothing happens every night. Mm. I, I think one of the biggest problems with, with us today in this age is that we want it right now. Things don't work like that. <laughs> you know, mm. it, mm. Uh, Mount Everest went from the lowest point in the, in, on Earth, 24,000 feet below sea level, to 29,000 feet above sea level at a rate of about that much per year. Half of an inch per year. So if Mount Everest is able to continually move up, grow, and get larger and larger, change occurs, which means we just have to be patient with what we're looking for and recognize the fact that Things take time to create, but you have to continue on the same path of that creation in order for it to actually be created as a result. Mm, mm, I love that. Um, That reminds me of this quote. My grandfather used to always tell me, a steady drop of water will make a hole in a rock. Exactly. Exactly. It it can be the most... uh, and it's the energy that goes into the water of the falling that's mm-hmm. creating the power of it. But yeah, you're right. You know, mm-hmm. it's the um, my wife and I have an expression where we say more near than before. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we're dealing with the crap and the challenges and the struggles that we're dealing with, we recognize the fact that if we can do one thing one day every day in continuance of that goal, and it can be just thinking about that goal, mm-hmm. then we're more near than before. As long as we're putting energy into it to move it forward, we're more near than before. And mm. you'd be surprised how things move very quickly. Whereas we're thinking, it's, oh, I can't do this. It's going to take me years. Years move very quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 365 mm-hmm. days goes very fast. Um. I'm going to throw a couple of terms or uh, quotes mm-hmm. or phrases your way, and I want uh, your personal interpretation. Um, here's the first one. I think, therefore, I am. Agreed. Mm. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> I think, therefore, I am. Um, you know, again, it goes into the detail of thought. You know, uh, what are we? Um, and being able to think gives us or actually puts us into – if you can't think, then you can't imagine. If you can't imagine, you can't create. Mm-hmm. You know, the only way humans can create is through thought, and therefore that thought goes through our, our senses, through our physical capabilities, and then we create the actual object itself, or we can procreate. Mm-hmm. But you have to be able to think before you can create. I love that. Um, here's another one, one of my favorite quotes. Um, I'm not who you say I am. 
you are who you say I am. Yeah, we project onto others our, our crap. We, we always do that, you know, and mm. it's, an human, it's a human flaw. Again, it goes to those route anchors, you know, that um, our learnings and our understandings that we develop way back here that we carry on that may not be adding any value to our lives, but we carry them on because it's what we know. It becomes our reality, and therefore we will oftentimes project our crap on to other people because mm. – you know, it's like Trump, who's always saying that people are are lying about him, or people are um, are doing things to him, because that's the only way through which he can understand um, what is happening around him by thinking people are automatically as crooked as he is. Mm. So, yeah, most definitely, I, I like that. Um, last one, um, as above, so below. Right. That's correspondence. Mm -hmm. It's the second law and is one of the most, I think it is one of the most foundational laws that encompasses all things, you know, um, as above, so as below, as within, so as without. It recognizes the fact that, again, that nothing comes from nothing. And if you can mm -hmm. take it at its literally word, um, Isaac Newton, you're familiar with the three laws of motion mm -hmm. and the origins of those three laws of motion. You know, uh, the first law is an object at rest stays at rest. Mm -hmm. Think about the correspondence. Nothing comes from nothing. An object in motion stays in motion. From something comes something subsimilar, which means when you have something and you have time, whether it's an increment of, of an instance of a second or a billion years, with each increment, change occurs. And therefore, from something comes something that is different than what it was before. That is the law of correspondence. Mm. Um, another question. What, um, what instance piqued your, your interest in hermetic principles or um, uh uh, comedic laws, like what, what, what piqued your interest yeah. in that? You know, there were a series of, of books that I read. Um, and I think one of the first books was by Manly P. Hall. Mm. And I, I think it was the, uh, the seeker's guide to, um, to all teachings, the seeker's guide to all teachings. Mm -hmm. And he talked And this, this gentleman lived back and it was born in the, I think 1925, therefore. Um, but he, he spoke about all the different foundational faiths and, uh, he included hermeticism in that and the traditions surrounding the Egyptians. And, you know, I, I think about that and recognize the fact that, um, that was really probably the most pivotal thing for me and recognizing again that the Egyptians had been around for such a long, I think they were around for close to um, 1500 years before even the Greeks came on the scene. So they had been around for such a long period of time that when you're around for such a long period of time, again, you think mm -hmm. your elites go into rooms, you have groups, you have those esoteric or those occultist groups and they think and then they layer a thought upon that thought and then they layer a thought upon that thought. And that is correspondence in itself. Again, you're building so many foundations of understandings, you know, that like if you think about, for example, calculus, you can't know calculus without first learning geometry. You can't learn geometry without first learning algebra. You know, those the Egyptians itself and then it was the Greeks when they were moving into the scene and went over into to Egypt. But 
they were transferring knowledge that had been picked up possibly from the eons um, that had been communicated over. And there was such a vast repository of knowledge in Alexandria back in, and I think it was around 40 BC, but 700,000 scrolls where every ship that came into harbor, they would go and take those documents, any books they could find, and they would transcribe them and they would give back the copies to the ships. So they had built up knowledge of all the different operations that they could discover, possibly lands and peoples that had existed or routes that were there that were burned down. Mm -hmm. 99% of all the knowledge that had been acquired throughout those periods was lost throughout all the, the Christendom going up to around 400 AD. It was lost. And we were only able to get that back around the 1400s. Some of it was discovered. 1% was discovered. So we had to completely start over from scratch. Now, you had Newton come along again in the uh, late 1500s. He was the beginning of what we consider as being Western culture, which is about 600 years old now. So if we were able to build what we've been able to build based on Newton's foundation of what he was able to glean from hermetic ideas and principles through his translations of Latin into English, and then therefore studying those laws and then applying them to the operations and movements of the planets, there's a lot of power in those laws that still remain. And that's what made me start looking at them. My, my tagline is adding clarity to the obvious, because I was starting to look at those laws and seeing them in operations and how I create in the process of creation, you know, especially the, the seventh law, gender, uh, which is the actual law of creation itself. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a lifetime journey for me. And I learn more and I see its impact and, and it's becoming more of my muscle every day um, as I continue down on my journey. Mm -hmm. um, how do you envision the future uh, evolution of neuro creative programming and what areas of research or development are you currently exploring? You know, the big thing that I'm working on nowadays is a book. You know, I want to write a book about this concept about um, the methodology itself um, because I think you can, it, it's, I th think it truly outlines the process of thought. You know, you had asked, for example, what really kind of got me into this. And I had started out the whole statements or our whole discussion today with um, my neural, neural uh, what's it called? Excuse me. Um, I can't remember the term. Uh, it's related to Asperger's mm -hmm. um, neurodivergence, neurodivergency, um, which is basically not being able to feel certain things that other people would be able to feel, not being able to make a deduction or, or interpret things in certain ways. For example, emotions. You know, when mm -hmm. I walk into a room, sometimes I have no idea what to do, whereas other people who may have a certain skill set in those areas would be much more charismatic and being able to move through it. But uh, a person with Asperger's who may be much more unable to determine or to kind of like figure out those social cues of what should happen. I'm very much so that way. And therefore, I was looking for rules early on, on how can I learn this shit if you don't just get it naturally? <laughs> how can I learn it? And 
neurolinguistics programming was a platform that helped me to really start to apply rules of how I can be better interpersonally and intrapersonally understand myself. Where did all that crap come from that I'm dealing with in life? But then applying it to the outside world allowed me to take it further. So I think that um, I think I lost my train of thought as the original question. That you no, asked. it's fine because <laughs> I can see a lot of that within my son. Um, he's definitely a reflection of me, right? But at two years old, he was counting to a hundred easily right. at two. Um, in school, he's at a first grade reading level when he's yeah. four, you know. Um, one day my wife and I was was eating, eating Asian food and we were uh, playing uh, videos on YouTube and he picked up the chopsticks and started mimicking um, I think it was Anderson Pack or whatever band it was. And he was mimicking the exact same um, yeah. drum patterns that he was playing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Is that a gift that you have? Or are you, do you play drums? I don't play drums, but mm-hmm. I think my gift is perception and patterns. Okay. You know, and my wife, she has a specific, like her intuition is crazy. You know, I don't know if that's more like a spiritual thing or she sees patterns as well. It's picking up energies is the same thing. It's right. The same thing. But um, I notice a lot of different things that my son can do and the way he processes things is way more advanced than I was at that age. You know? And I think kids in general are today. Um you know, I'm sure your son's an exceptional child as well. You know, yeah. he's got certain capabilities that you should really, you should really lean into. Right. I, I say follow where he's naturally inclined to go, and then give him uh, more direction in that direction. You know, right. give him things that he may want to do to take it down, and he may pull away from it, or he may continue further down. But you know, when I went through school, my experience w- was completely different, and it's only I've only kind of come into my own within the last maybe five years. You know, mm-hmm. when I went to elementary school, you know, I was the one that rode on that small bus. Mm-hmm. You know, I was the one who, who took the test and, and found out that I had a low IQ. Mm-hmm. I was the one that therefore, when I went on to, um, to eventually going on to college, got up enough nerve, enough courage to fight my, my, uh, inadequacies about education, about what I thought I would be capable of. Um, you know, I was the one who had imposter syndrome all throughout my corporate life climb and, and everywhere I, I went hmm. because I know I think differently. I know I don't process this information the same way someone else does, but that could mean that what I have to bring to the table could be even more of value than mm-hmm. someone else's because they're following patterns that are known and I'm following something that may break out of those patterns. Mm-hmm. But you can only imagine, you know, throughout my middle school uh, life, um, riding on small buses and going to special education classes and so forth, you can only imagine how that how much that affects a person's confidence and right. their ability right. to be able to achieve, at least their perception of their ability to be able to achieve anything that they want. So I'm only coming out of that right now. So you're, you've got your, your son on a great path from the standpoint of being able to feed him mm-hmm. continual ways to follow that path. Mm. I mean, we know that instead of um, making a way for people who process things differently mm-hmm. – 
they just put you in a room somewhere on a corner somewhere. And I don't want to say forget about you, but they just push you away so they can focus on the other people. Right. Which is really messed up. And I think there's a lot of, you know, African-American, um, you know, black and brown people who go through that because we process things differently. Right. You know, and we're not, we're not on that structure, uh, quote unquote, uh, uh, test taker uh, thing because our minds don't work in that manner. You know, our minds work differently. Um, and I think it's, um, I think it's different ways for us to come up, come out of our shells and, and be who we truly are without being discouraged. You know what I mean? it's that's hard you know you're right exactly because we're all to your point following a pattern and their place they have patterns placed upon us as to what they believe we should be doing where we should be going i think i heard a quote a while back where they say it was mentioned that they actually determine the number of prisons they're going to build in the future based on the number of kids that are in uh second grade right they can make a projection that far into the future as far as how many um, jails they're going to need. Now, if you can right. make a projection like that, then why can't you make a projection in a positive way and therefore support that population in such a way that that population goes the direction of the positive as opposed to the negative, i.e. in the, the correctional system? Mm-hmm. You know, why aren't you building the schools or creating the education system that can allow them to take classes for free that encourages them to, to learn in other ways? You know, you had mentioned that you're not a real big book learner. Mm-hmm. Um, I never was either. You know, the drudgery of being able to sit through and go through a, a book and take in that content. Um, but I turned, I changed on that one. You know, I am probably one of the biggest audiobook fans in the world. I think I mm-hmm. went through like close to 250 books just over the last three years since COVID because it's the best way to pick up more dots. Right. You know, it's when in the way I do it, I would um, go, for example, and I smoke weed. Mm-hmm. And then I take a walk mm-hmm. and I going through and listening and you're, you're listening on, on the, on the verge, you know, half the time you're listening, other times you're not listening. Other times you're listening in great detail and then you're mm-hmm. taking notes, you're, you're clipping it, you're making little clips. And then I will go back and I will reread that book and, or re-listen to that book. And I may re-listen to that book six months later or a year mm-hmm. later or two years later mm-hmm. because each time I listen to that book again, I gain more kernels of understanding of what that book is saying. Whereas the first time it might have been like, well, I'm not sure I like that book, but I got through it. But then the second and then the third and the fourth times, you're picking up so many dots and such mm-hmm. a foundational understanding of what that man was actually saying or that woman was actually saying in any topic it doesn't matter the topic it's the detail that's important in the time and intention focused on gaining that detail i love that um lastly um what a message or takeaway do you hope the listeners gain from our conversations about uh neuro create creative programming Right. I, I would say the biggest thing that, that I would offer from the standpoint of how do you carry forward with that is pay closer attention to the details. Try to go and look for the small things that may be within any of your experiences where you are naturally inclined to go. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes we, we, we pick up on things, but we don't go there. We don't want to know more. 
But uh, whether you're the physical person and the athlete, whether you're the musician, whether you're whatever, the need is there to pay attention to the anomalies, the pattern breaks that come across you mm-hmm. and lean into those pattern breaks and you will find dots. That's where they exist within the details. Intention, attention to detail, and expectation of outcome. Exactly. And I have it listed in three processes. I say it's, um, it's active awareness, being actively aware from wherever you are. Mm-hmm. The next one is experimental curiosity, asking those questions of the different things, wondering what is it, how does it work, making a firmer dot within your mind. And then the last one is connective assemblance, where we're taking the dots and creating the connections. And then we're building the foundations of ideas. And when you continually work with that foundational understanding of how do you move through an idea, I call it focused ideation, then that's when you start to see things really coming into fruition, not just from the standpoint of a design, but the actual thing itself that you're seeking. Mm. I think that's a perfect uh, way to end it. Well, Mr. Ty Glover, um, this was a wonderful conversation. I gained very much insight. Um, I love what you're doing with your um, neurocreative programming. Um, I would love to purchase a book as soon as you finish writing it. I would love to purchase it. So um, just let me know when it's done so I can just click the purchase button for real. And um, we'll great. share it. Cool. Thank you very much. Truly appreciate your time today. I'm sorry I didn't get to meet your wife. No, it's all good. <laughs> Thank all you right. again. No problem, Mr. Right. Glover. Thank you. Peace.